Please open your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 1. You'll find the uh, notes of this morning's message in the bulletin or on our website. And this morning we're going to look at just one verse, but I think it's an important verse. I think it's a crucial text for us to understand. In a book dominated by imperative verbs, our verse this morning has no commands. James is stating doctrinal truth, and he's putting before us great encouragement to persevere under trial. I'd like to begin by reading the entire section in which this verse is found. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 15. Over a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all and without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. But the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Lord God, I pray that by your word you would equip and strengthen us to persevere through life's trials. Lord, we desire the crown of life. We desire to grow in our steadfastness, and we desire that steadfastness would have its full effect in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would inform our minds, that you would give us the resolve, the hope, and the joy we need to fight by faith, to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. So one verse, and I'm worried whether or not I'll have time to get through everything, so but that's the good thing about not having ABF. Okay. It's just, I mean, who's to say when it ends, right? Um, okay. We've talked about this section in James as dealing with trials. As the introductory section, it sort of frames the entire book. James is writing to people persecuted, scattered, belittled, poor, the nothings, the nobodies, mostly scattered around the Greek world. And he knows that is going to bring immense trials in their life. And he urges them to be faithful. He urges us to be faithful. He's already given one motivation for faithfulness back in verse 2 and 3. Count it all joy. Why? 
The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. ESV uses steadfastness. I prefer endurance because the English word endurance, like the Greek word, is easily changed into a verb, endure, endurance. But you can't do that with steadfastness. The idea is to remain under something, hupo meno, to remain under, and presumably a weight or trial or difficulty. And so he's given us a motivation for persevering in trial that's temporal, it's now, right here and now, as you and I persevere, count it all joy, we will grow in endurance, we will grow in steadfastness. And that, in turn, will produce a a full-bodied maturity, Make us fully equipped, perfect, mature, however you want to translate that. That's one reason. He's going to give us another now. Another important reason why we are to desire, to strive, to make it our goal, to be faithful and persevere. And that is the crown of life. Read with me again verse 12. No imperatives. Takes the form of a beatitude. This is a a doctrinal statement. He's declaring truth. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James wants to motivate us to desire to engage volitionally, emotionally, mentally in the project of persevering under trial. And he's giving us another great reason to do so. And so we're going to look at this by looking at three questions, or answering three questions. First, what perseverance receives? What perseverance receives? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. There's two things that the man who perseveres will receive. The first is blessedness. Blessedness. And the idea here is favor with God. Favor with God. Um, James is piggybacking off of his older brother, Jesus. You remember, turn turn to Matthew um, chapter 5. Jesus pronounced these types of beatitudes regularly. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you can see what James is saying is cut right out of that cloth. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. This, this person receives favor from God. That's the idea of blessing. There's a trial. They're receiving difficulty, pain, anguish, sorrow in life. They're also receiving favor and blessing from God. Now, the grammar in the Greek here stresses the ongoing activity for the one who is persevering under trial. So right off the bat, there's encouragement. If you are facing trials, and if you're not, you will be soon. That's the nature of life. 
you can take comfort in the fact that if you can face those trials faithfully, you're finding favor with God. God is pleased. You are blessed. You are blessed. And so point two here, this is yet another reason to rejoice in trials. This is, you notice the connection to theme with verse 12 and verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. Here, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Why, in verse 2, do I count it joy? Because the testing of my faith produces steadfastness. Verse 12 links with steadfastness. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. We've come back to our initial statement in verse 2 and 3. And so in in verses 2 through 4, James gives the temporal blessing, the temporal benefit. Now he's going to shift to an eternal benefit. There's a benefit now. There's There's a good thing now for you to view as a joyful blessing. There's also a benefit that's coming. And that's what he focuses on here. This is yet another reason to rejoice in trials. Perseverance produces maturity now, James 1, 3. And perseverance produces approvedness. It's hard to find a good English word that makes this idea. Um, the idea is something that's passed a test, something that's been approved, something that's been tested and given the A+. plus. you ever buy those jackets or clothes and it says inspected by? Something's been approved, passed a test. That's the idea here. Once he has become approved, once he's been tested and found valid, he will receive the crown of life. So perseverance does the following, according to this section. One, it's the fruit of the testing of our faith. When genuine faith is tested, it yields perseverance, steadfastness. When steadfastness is given time, it becomes the fertile seedbed for all other aspects of our character. We saw that in verse 4 of chapter 1. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So not only that, but endure under trial long enough and you reach a state of approvedness, and you get something else. So growing in endurance is something we should desire. Our steadfastness, growing in faithfulness, is something to be prized. And that links back to why, then, you might view a trial, which is something in and of itself unpleasant, painful, difficult, as a good thing. Because trials, and pretty much trials alone, cause us to grow in steadfastness. Usually, Blessings and easy life doesn't really do that, generally speaking. So then he lists the other blessing, which is the crown of life. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. So this is not something you receive now. You've got to be tested. Your endurance has to persevere. And then you receive the crown of life, which is what? Well, here are blanks. It is eternal life. Another way of translating this would be the crown, which is life. The crown, which is life. Eternal life. That's a blessing. Your your trials in this life may take your life prematurely. Certainly the people James is writing to, that's a very real possibility. And yet, the one who is persevering in those trials can rejoice, consider themselves blessed, because they'll receive the crown of life, which is eternal life. Listen to what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2 to one of the churches. Revelation 2, 10 to 11. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. For 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So the crown of life is put in contrast to the second death. This is eternal life. And Jesus offers it as an encouragement, just as James does, to a suffering church. So that brings up, I think, two questions in your mind, possibly, two problems of James putting forward this crown of life. And I'd like to deal with them now briefly. The first is... Isn't James then motivating us to be faithful to get something? Isn't James basically encouraging us to endure to get? Isn't there sort of a mercenary flavor to this? Doesn't James, turn to chapter 4, condemn this type of attitude? Look at James chapter 4. Verses 2 and 3. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. So James here is saying when we come to God asking for things because we want things, that can be a, a wicked thing. So how then can James put before us this carrot, eternal life, without turning our walk of faith into a mercenary act? I want to read an extended quote from C.S. Lewis on this point, I found very helpful. In his um, sermon that he gave, The Weight of Glory, he deals with this problem, and I think he does it well. Let me read to you. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ, and nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern Christian minds the notion that to desire our own good and to earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased." And these promises of reward are found on our Lord's lips regularly. We just read in the Beatitudes, blessed, blessed. Why? They receive the kingdom of heaven. They'll be satisfied. There's a blessing that's tangible attached to Jesus' Beatitudes. So it is right and biblical to put reward forward. But still, how do we get around the issue of of, of obeying to get, being faithful to get, to receive the, the, the problem of it seeming mercenary? Lewis And the next paragraph says this, and I think this is critical. We must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of reward. There is the reward which has no natural connection to the things you do to earn it. And it is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. Money is not the natural reward for love, which is why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for money. There's no natural connection between money and love. And so if a man marries a woman just to get her money, we view that as mercenary. 
But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he is not mercenary for desiring it. A general who fights well in order to get a peerage is a mercenary. A general who fights well for victory is not. Victory being the proper reward of battle, as marriage is the proper reward of love. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given. They are the activity itself in consummation. So I think that's a helpful description of desiring things from God rightly and wrongly. When we love the one who is living and self-existent, the living God, and we desire to be with him, the appropriate fitting culmination of that desire is life. We're with the one who is life himself. And desiring that life, straining for that life, is a good thing. When you want God to give you other things so you can spend them on your pleasures, that's spiritual adultery. That's what James calls out in chapter 4. Do we want the things we're asking for for God's sake or for our own? And so here, life, and understand to be life in the presence of God, life with Christ in heaven for eternity is a good desire. And we honor God by seeking this reward. You're blank here. It pleases God for you to seek this reward. In fact, tied up in the very nature of faith itself is desire for reward. Listen to Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So this is a good thing to desire. Desiring the crown of life, which the Lord gives to those who love him, is a good thing. James clearly holds it up as something to motivate us, as something to spur us on, and there's nothing wrong in that. Now the next question I'm assuming you're wrestling with is, doesn't that sound, Pastor Jeremy, like you're saying a condition for salvation is enduring trials? And I'd say in one sense, absolutely yes. Now let me deal with that. But here's your blank. Perseverance in faith is necessary for your salvation. Perseverance in faith is necessary for your salvation. And I, I got a lot of verses here because I know that's going to sound weird to some of your ears. Um, there can be a lot of th- ways of viewing things as necessary. We are saved by faith alone, but we're saved by Christ's death. We're saved... Not by our works, but we're saved by works, Christ's works. What James is saying here is the crown of life goes to those who persevere under trial. Think about it. Look at it here. The crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And the clear implication is this crown only goes to such people. Those who love him, those who persevere. And maybe a way to consider it is this. In a book like James that deals with real faith and false faith, self-deception, he's insisting that genuine faith, the faith that saves, cannot die. We, We sang it earlier. The good shepherd shepherds his flock. If you're one of his sheep, you cannot slip through his fingers. And so James is insisting the biblical truth. We'll look at some passages. That genuine believers, genuine Christians persevere. They fail, but they get back up again. They they may... They may err, but the good shepherd comes and gets them. Let me, let me read you some passages from Jesus' own mouth. Matthew 10, 22. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, 13. 
the one who endures to the end will be saved. The early church composed hymns or doctrinal statements, um, the trustworthy sayings in Paul's um, so-called pastoral epistles. One of those trustworthy sayings says this. Now, understand this. The early church thought these truths were of such importance that they should be memorably put together so that presumably converts could put them to memory. And Paul says, that's a good saying. 2 Timothy 2, 12 and 13. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. 2 Timothy 4, 8. Paul speaks of this crown a little differently. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. Or in 1 Corinthians 9.25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. One other passage, Hebrews, turn to Hebrews 3. Now, this is important. I'm not saying you become saved by persevering. Rather, you prove you are saved. You prove you have faith by your faith enduring. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Interestingly, this is the very first sermon I ever preached in this church 14 years ago. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And look at verse 14, and the verb tenses are critical. For we have come to share in Christ, that's a past tense verb, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So understand what that's saying. Instead of we, let me put Jeremy in. For Jeremy has come to share in Christ. Sometime in the past, Jeremy came to share in Christ. It's not future. It's not Jeremy will. Jeremy has. We have come to share in Christ if Jeremy holds his original confidence firm to the end. Jeremy became a Christian in the summer of 1999 if Jeremy makes it to the end. That's what he's saying. Which means if Jeremy doesn't make it to the end, it's not Jeremy lost his salvation. It means Jeremy didn't become a Christian in the summer of 1999. That's what the grammar is saying here. This is not a popular truth. We like half of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. In the Reformation, um, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints was re, I won't say discovered, but re-articulated, re-emphasized. And we like half of it. We like the half that says you can't lose your salvation. Amen, you can't. The other half is the saints by God's enabling, by his shepherding, and by his grace, do indeed persevere. One of the hallmarks of saving faith, the, safe that, the faith that God gives, is it does not ultimately die. Okay? There's, there's no other way around this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. doesn't work if there's eight other ways to receive the crown of life. Also note, the same people who persevere are the ones who love him. You can call them both. Who gets the crown of life? Do perseverers get the crown of life? Or do those who love the Lord get the crown of life? And the answer is, of course, yes. You're starting to understand why James thinks persevering in trials is a critically important issue. This isn't some bolt-on issue for super-Christians. 
This isn't something to go above and beyond. This is the nature of our faith. This is the nature of our salvation. That The faith that saves us endures. We are main faithful. Okay? Let's now look at what perseverance proves. We saw that perseverance receives blessedness and the crown of life. What does perseverance prove? Well, jumping from our last point, it proves the reality of your faith. It proves the reality of your faith. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, when he has become approved, he will receive the crown of life. Now we know that what's being tested here is, look back in James chapter 1, verse 3, what's being tested in a trial? Your faith. So the picture is this. We profess faith in Christ. And God, throughout our life, for his own reasons, we'll get to some of those reasons in a few minutes, tries and tests that faith, proving its genuineness. And then, upon its being proven genuine, we receive the the culmination of our salvation, eternal life. We, We get forgiveness now, but we don't experience eternal life until then, even as we have new life in us. It proves the reality of your faith. This is just James' whole point. When we get to chapter 2, he's going to say, I will show you my faith by what I do. What this means then is, again, there's an ironclad connection between what you believe and what you do. What you believe and how you respond to trial. There's no room for failing to persevere into trial and yet insisting, but I love the Lord and I have faith. The crown goes to those who persevere crown goes to those who love him. And trials that we persevere through test our faith. So if a person fails the test, their faith has been found to be unapproved. That's that's the logic here. Verse 2 and 3, knowing that the testing of your faith, trials are testing faith. And how our faith responds under trial proves its genuineness. And that's how this is about salvation, by faith through and through, not by works. But what it means is we can't hold on to some confidence we had real faith 20 years ago if we're trying to separate that from not having faith today. That's the idea. If, If we have come to faith genuinely, we will continue to be believing. Okay? It proves the reality of our faith. How does it do that? It reveals who and what you value. It reveals who and what you value. When you can have everything you want, it's hard to know what you most value. When you have to select what you can keep and what you must give up, it becomes more apparent what you treasure. Your house is burning down and you can only have one trip to grab some things. We know you'll grab the things that are most precious to you. Now, if you're moving, I've learned this, you take all sorts of useless junk with you. You had no place for it in your old house. You had no place for it in your new house. No, what, what proves what you value is that culling process that occurs when you can't have it both ways. And trials do that. Do you want comfort or do you want to be faithful? Do you want men to speak well of you or do you want God to have regard for you? Do you want the world to love you or do you want to be faithful to Christ? Choose 
Now, when you can have both, or when it seems you can have both, it's hard to know what you really value. When push comes to shove, when you have to choose, then you see. Trials reveal what we value. They reveal what we treasure. In Matthew 6, 19 to 21, Jesus says this. Notice again, he's appealing to motive for reward. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. You don't want that temporal, rotting away treasure. You want eternal treasure, Jesus says. Where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So trials reveal, oh wow, I guess I really do care a lot what people think about me. They reveal it to ourselves. I'll learn things about myself under trial. Things I didn't think I cared about, I do. So trials reveal who and what we value and treasure. Secondly, um, perseverance proves it reveals who and what you trust. When there's stakes to be measured, when there's a cost to count, what counsel, what wisdom you receive matters If the stakes are low, we we don't always care as much. But if you found out you had a deadly disease, you'd want to get an opinion from a top surgeon, not from Wikipedia. When it matters, you, you prioritize who you go to for counsel and for a prescription. Likewise, trials reveal whose wisdom we trust. In chapter 4, James is going to talk about two very different types of wisdom. Turn over to chapter 4 again. I mean, chapter 3, I'm sorry, chapter 3. Briefly, verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast to me false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. There's a wisdom for you. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. You will have no problem gathering around you sympathetic friends and co-workers encouraging you to do the very things God tells you not to do. Don't put up with that. Stand up for yourself. Take what's yours, whatever. You'll have no problem finding counsel if you turn on Oprah or Dr. Phil who you're going to trust. Trials prove who we trust because when there are stakes that matter, we know we're going to turn to who and what we really trust. Trials reveal whose wisdom we believe. That's what it came down to in the garden, right? Will Eve believe the living God or will she believe this talking snake? And we know who she believed because we know what she did because her actions flowed out of what she believed, who she trusted. Third, it reveals the reality of your salvation. The idea is this. We are declared righteous the moment we have faith, but then our actions prove the reality. Think of Abraham. We know in Genesis 12, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And then the reader gets to see Abraham respond in faith when God tells him to sacrifice his son. In other words... In chapter 12, we have the narrator's authority that Abraham believed God. A few chapters later, we see it with our own eyes. His faith is proved genuine. We're no longer taking it on the narrator's word alone. We see it in action. 
And trials prove that reality. Turn, turn to verses um, 21 of chapter 1. Again, this is a major theme in James. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So James is definitely concerned with the possibility of self-deception. People thinking they're one thing when they're another. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. He looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, ooh, key word, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Oh, look, here's another blessed person. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, oh, self-deception again, this person's religion is worthless. Do you see how James is going out of his way to highlight the potential reality that people who say they have faith but whose lives don't line up with that are self-deceived and fool themselves? Twice in, in these two paragraphs, he addresses this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So your faithfulness in trial garners favor with God and moves you towards that approvedness upon which your faith being proven to be genuine will result in receiving a crown of life. Or your failure to persevere in trial will be will yield something else. That's what we're going to be looking at next week. But look at how, remember, the now blessing of maturity, the later blessing of the crown of life, look what failing to persevere into trial yields. Verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. There's your now result. And when sin is full grown, it brings forth death as opposed to a crown of life. So there's two paths in trial. One, counts it all joy, asks God for wisdom, perseveres, not perfectly, but without quitting, without giving up, getting back up, moving forward, calling on God for help. That person slowly matures, they become approved, they receive the crown of life. There's another path. James envisions a person complaining or blaming God. It's God's fault. He's tempting me. It's not my fault. That produces sin now. And that sin unchecked, without repentance, gone to seed, brings forth death. And the death, in contrast to the crown of life, is eternal death. No, the stakes are real, and we basically see our faith in action over time. The, the reality of your faith, it reveals the reality of your salvation. Let me, let me read a parallel verse in 1 Peter that gives, makes the same point. James and Peter are, have the same idea. In this you rejoice, 1 Peter 6, 1, 6-7, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Why do we have trials, James? I mean, Peter? Who? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, the reality is your perseverance, my perseverance, not only proves things about us, what we value, what we trust, the reality of our salvation, it also proves the faithfulness of the Lord. This is one of the reasons God is intent 
on testing and showing to the watching world the reality of our faith. Turn to James chapter 5. He picks up this theme with almost the same wording. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job's steadfastness not only revealed the reality of his faith, which was the very thing Satan was challenging, remember? He doesn't really love you for who you are. He obeys you to get blessings. Okay, then take, take them away. And we see the reality of Job's faith under trial. And we also see something about God, James says. Your and my faithfulness in trials reveals plenty about what we love, what we treasure, what we value. It also reveals something about God, his faithfulness. First, it reveals the Lord's sufficient grace. It reveals the Lord's sufficient grace. James has already alluded to this, us asking for help, wisdom. When Christians persevere in difficulty, under trial, over long periods of time, it demonstrates God gives sufficient grace. Because again, this isn't about salvation by works. This is about God upholding his children of faith by his grace. God does give wisdom to those who ask for it. God does supply their needs. God does comfort them in their affliction. You remember Paul had a thorn in his flesh. Three times he asked for it to be taken away. What did the Lord say to him? He said to him, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The world gets to see God's power in Paul's weakness. Paul's conclusion, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When we persevere, we are a wonderful advertisement for the living God. The world is not impressed when wealthy, blessed, powerful people praise God. When some celebrity praises God, the world's not impressed. When someone who just scored a touchdown points up to the sky, not impressed. Like Satan, they can conclude, oh, I see why they serve him. Look at what they get. But when things are taken from us, when we go through difficult circumstances, when everything the world would treasure is taken from us and we still joyfully praise him, that speaks of an amazing and sustaining God. Just think of Jeb Brewer's testimony of faithfulness in suffering and the testimony of God's sustaining grace it gives It reveals the Lord's sufficient grace. Second, it reveals the Lord's good purpose. That's what we saw in verse 5. I mean, in chapter 5, verse 11. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord. And the Bible is littered with this. We see people go through suffering, and we see God has a plan. So Joseph is sold into slavery by his very own brothers, He's sold into slavery in Egypt. In Egypt, he acts faithfully, and he's accused of attempted rape, and he's thrown into jail. More suffering. And he's faithful, and he trusts the Lord. And we see God's purpose in that. We see 
The reality of Joseph's faith, and we see the good purposes of God. We see the same thing in the book of Job. But probably most clearly, we see it in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who endured greater suffering? Who persevered under trial more steadfastly? And we can see God had a very good and great purpose in that. Our perseverance reveals, as the world watches, God's sufficient grace and his good purposes. And point three, it displays the Lord's compassion and mercy. When God's frail people continue to stand and rejoice and trudge on, it speaks to their God who upholds them, who comforts them. We have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I stress this point because you may wonder, well, why, if God loves us, does he ordain trials? Why does he cause life to be difficult so often? Because as a proud father, he wants us and the world to see the genuineness of our faith. What he's birthed perseveres. He wants the world to see his sustaining power and glory, his good purposes. All these things are accomplished as we persevere in trials. And it grows us up. All that's accomplished. And James wants us to have that in view so that we can count it on joy, so we won't give up, so we'll persevere on. That's what persevere proves. Finally, let's look at how perseverance is fueled. How perseverance is fueled. We get that in the last little phrase, which God has promised to those who love him. In case you're tempted to think, okay, this is stoicism. This is the stiff upper lip. This is do your bit. No. Perseverance is fueled by love. James is able to speak of the people who receive the crown of life two ways. Who receives the crown of life, James? Those who remain steadfast in their trial and those who love the Lord. Implication, they're one and the same people. They're one and the same people. You're blank here. Those who love the Lord persevere in faith. Those who love the Lord persevere in faith. And I want to draw three reasons how your love for the Lord might fuel perseverance, how this, how this logic works. Because love for the Lord produces faithfulness. Love for the Lord produces faithfulness. First, because we love him, we yearn to please him. Anyone who's ever been in love knows what it's like to desire the pleasure of the object of their love. Um, when I was pursuing Serena for marriage, I gave much thought to what would please her, what would make her happy, what would delight her. And my joy was found in her pleasure. And the logic holds the same here. We love the Lord. We want his pleasure. We want to please him. We want to hear, well done, faithful son. And our love for him fuels our obedience. Jesus makes this abundantly clear in John fourteen fifteen. Listen, if you love me, Jesus says, you will obey my commandments. We've got to get rid of a category of people who claim to love Jesus who systematically, habitually, and without repentance disobey him. No, you don't. No, you don't. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Because we love him, we yearn to please him. Because we love him, we trust his word. The one we love, we view as faithful and trustworthy. 
And so our reliance upon God's word is another evidence of our love for him and trust for him. I believe he is who he is and who he says he is, and I love him for that. And so I take his word as truth. And I want to please him, and I rely upon his counsel to me on how to do that. And finally, because we love him, we treasure his reward. Because we love him, we treasure his reward. And really, I think that's what ultimately the testing proves. What do you really want? You know, this is a great motivation if you want a crown of life. If you want favor with God, you, you know how to pursue it. The, the problem is maybe some of us think, well, I don't really want that. Not as much as I want the approval of my classmates. Not as much as I want that promotion and recognition at work. Not as much as I want success or money or pleasure. And so ultimately our love for the Lord is what drives us to want his reward. Love for God is what makes life with Christ unending something you desire. Right? Listen to Matthew thirteen forty four. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. You have the hope of eternal life with the risen Christ, with the Father, with the Spirit, and with the saints of old. You have the hope of God giving you wisdom, answering your prayers, sustaining you through these trials in this life. How you respond proves what you want, what you treasure, what you worship. The, the origin of the English word worthship comes from the Middle English worthship. Worship is simply demonstrating what you think has worth, what you think has value. Which is why when you can't have all you want, you show what you think has the greater value, what you and I worship in what we do which is why trials are so excellent at bringing those things to light. So I want to encourage you this morning. If you're not in a trial, you will be soon. God is pleased. Your heavenly Father looks on you with pleasure and joy as you walk in faithfulness, as you trust in him, as you lean on his word, as you endeavor to count it all joy. When you cry out, help, I don't know how to do this. I need your wisdom. He gladly gives it. And we do this together, not alone. The other alternative is that sin is birth, and that left unchecked produces death. There's only two paths. Next week, we'll look at how temptation works, but this morning, I just want to encourage you to persevere. We do it by grace. The faith that God gives, He sustains. And look, look down at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth. He birthed us by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. God, what God births, he sustains. He upholds. He comforts and strengthens and enables and equips. So, let us rejoice in the promise and the hope and let us commit to be people striving to remain steadfast under trial, relying on the grace of our Father, trusting that he will hold us fast, and waiting for his coming. I'm going to have a word of prayer, and we're going to transition to a time of communion now. Let me have a word of prayer first.
Lord God, we in our own strength could never hold fast to you. Our heart is prone to wander, prone prone to leave the God I love. Lord, my heart regularly is enticed by other desires. And Lord, even as we commit, we're able where we see it, where we can to fight and to resist, we cry out for your help, for your shepherding, for your hand of protection. Our ultimate hope is not that we will hold fast to you, but that you will hold fast to us. Work in us. Cause your word to bear fruit. Shepherd us. Discipline us. Uphold us. Comfort us. Give us the wisdom we need that we might grow in endurance, grow in maturity, bringing glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned it earlier, but the ultimate example persevering under trial and faithfulness is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he modeled for us. There's nothing God is calling us to do that the Lord Jesus hasn't perfectly first demonstrated for us. And what we're about to celebrate um, is a picture of his death and suffering. Hopefully of the elements in front of you, if you don't get the attention of an usher in the back, we do have extra um, elements available. It's a double stack the bread and the grape juice is in one stack. You can get those ready. Now, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, the night he entered into his greatest trial, took a meal that God had given to his people at the exodus from Egypt, a meal that was to picture their release from slavery by God's grace, their deliverance, and a Passover lamb that protected the judgment of death. And Jesus takes this meal and he gives it a new meaning and he gives it to his people. Now this meal is for anyone who is united to the Lord by faith. For anyone who knows him. If you are not a Christian, if you are not one who is united to Christ in faith, I'd encourage you to let this pass. Take this time to do business with the Lord, to call upon him. To meet him by faith. If you are a believer, this, this symbolic meal is for you. This, this is not the thing itself. This is not the body of Christ. This is some bread. But signs are significant. Signs can be holy things, and it points to a reality that is glorious. We have a word of prayer first. Allow us to deal with our sins in our hearts. The Apostle Paul warns us not to come unworthily. We don't come sinlessly, but we can come sincerely. We can come humbly. We can come in repentance. Let's take a moment. I'll give you some silent time to pray, and then I'll 